And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Hey everybody, welcome to a Monday edition of the Athletic Baseball Show presented by Tops. Check out Tops Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Tops baseball cards. Hope you're embracing your week on this Monday like Albert Pujols is embracing his time as a Dodger, already homering for LA. I'm Tim McMaster along with Ken Rosenthal. Mondays on the Athletic Baseball Show are all about your questions. You ask them, Ken answers them. Ken, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Tim. Thank you. All right, before we get to the mailbag, Ken, two more no-hitters last week, numbers five and six on the season. Uh, You and Britt Giroli wrote a story on Friday. It published talking about basically all the sticky stuff being used by pitchers, how blatant it is at times, how players are not happy about it, not just hitters. Some pitchers aren't happy about it either. It was a really good story. Thanks, Tim. I appreciate that. This is something I've written about a few times this season, and it's bugging me. And it's bugging me because I don't see baseball taking action this season. Now, they issued a memo in March to all the teams saying they were going to increase their monitoring, increase their vigilance on it, take balls from every pitcher, study the spin rates through StatCast, all of that spin rate increases. And they left open the possibility that there would be discipline. Now, we're a quarter of the way through the season. What I'm getting told by MLB is, can't discipline yet because it's too early. We're still gathering data. Okay, but at what point does the discipline start? Because if you read the story, people who did, and I'll kind of talk about it a little bit, just what it was, there were players in that story comparing what is going on with pitching now to the steroid era, basically saying it's a competitive advantage to use the advanced substances, not just rosin, but some of the stuff that these guys are using. And their complaint was, you either do it or you get left behind. Or if you're a hitter, you're simply at a disadvantage. So this is a real problem in the game. Now, is it the only reason why offense is down? Of course not. Hitters all or nothing approaches. That's a big reason, of course. The increased use of numbers of pitchers. What I'm talking about is seeing all these different angles and all these different pitchers in a single game. All of this comes into play. We know that. But this is a factor. And Trevor Bauer warned about this and and made the comparison to the steroid era as far back as 2018. So it's not as if this has snuck up on the sport. It's not as if the strikeout rate increases have snuck up on the sport because this is the 14th straight year. Again, I'm waiting to see action. And I promise you, if there is no action, this is not the last time We are going to write about this at The Athletic because it's a problem. It's an ongoing problem. It's a problem baseball said it would address. And to this point, at least, and you have to give them some time and fairness, the sport has not addressed it, not in a meaningful way. 
It feels like these no hitters also are almost like shining a giant spotlight on the problem, right? Like, look at who's throwing all of these no hitters. Hitters can't hit. They didn't forget how. There's a reason. Tim, I agree. And the no hitters kind of highlight the lack of offense and the problems facing hitters today and all of the issues that are going on in the game with regard to decreased run production. And yes, it is shining a light on this. And when Don Mattingly this week, Don Mattingly, the manager of the Marlins, not some guy on Twitter, not some writer at The Athletic, not some yo-yo on TV, if you want to call these people that, (laughs) Don Mattingly, one of the most respected people in baseball, said the game was unwatchable. That is a strong criticism. That's coming from someone who knows something. It's someone who is deeply respected. It is not any of us. It's someone who has been in this game and excelled at this game and has been one of the most admired people in this game for a long time. It's time to start listening. Absolutely. All right. Well, you're still in St. Louis. You were on the broadcast for Cubs Cardinals on Saturday night. Uh, The Cubs really in a fascinating season right now. They're, They're kind of at a crossroads. They're playing decent baseball. They're a game over 500 as we record this on Sunday. But tough decisions are coming down the road this season for Jed Hoyer and company. No question, Tim. And I talked about this a little bit on the broadcast. Their decisions will not simply be based on their one-loss record or their position in the standings. They could be in really good shape come July. If they keep playing like this, they will be in really good shape. But if Hoyer and the rest of the front office does not see this team being capable of making a deep run in October, they're going to continue that transition that started when they traded Hugh Darvish in the offseason. Now, if they had Darvish right now, they'd be in even a better position, but that's another story <laughs> for another day. So, really, they're going to have to take a hard look at themselves and say, okay, are we capable of winning the division? That's an important question because that gets you at least out of the wild card game. And we're going to have another year of wild card games at the very least. So, teams generally do not want to make long-term decisions based on the possible appearance in a wild-card game, which is, of course, a one-game knockout. Who knows what might happen? So they're going to take a hard look. But John Smoltz raised an interesting point on the broadcast last night when we started talking about this, and he said, well, who's to say an Anthony Rizzo or a Javier Baez, the two guys that we think are the most likely to sign, who's to say they're going to want to stay if the Cubs trade Chris Bryant and Craig Kimbrell and Jock Peterson and others, if they kind of tear it apart. And there's another underlying factor here as well, and that is who the Cubs want to be in the next three or four years. This is not a low-revenue team, small market team. This is a team that, of course, has a huge, huge fan base, a new TV network. You would think they're going to want to compete. So they're going to have to make some really hard decisions. And who knows what each of these players might bring. That's going to be a question unto itself. But the Cubs are and have been since really the offseason a team to watch. And they will remain a team to watch simply because of all these dynamics that I just discussed. Yeah, our Cubs podcast here at The Athletic onto Waveland. It's like a weekly check-in basically on Chris Bryant exactly. and what he's doing. And that's just the basis of the season for those guys covering this team. Um, It's just like what it's more about the future than about right now, even though they are playing pretty good baseball right now. All right, let's get into the mailbag. Hey, this is Ken. I'm not available right now. Please leave a voicemail. 
If you want to get involved next week or get your voice on the show, call the hotline 646-543-7072. You can also email us tabaseballshow at gmail.com. And Ken, we'll start actually with an email. This one from David Soriano. Uh, He says, with the Angels constantly failing to make the playoffs or even be in contention for a playoff spot, and with Mike Trout getting older every year, do you think Trout could try to force a trade out of Anaheim within the next couple of years if this trend continues? I know the contract is massive, but we've seen guys like Stanton, Arenado been moved recently. So what do you think would be the haul that the Angels could get for Mike Trout? And also, which teams do you think would be in a position to be involved? Wow, that's a lot, David, but it's a fascinating topic. And certainly Trout, he is someone who has never expressed a desire to be anywhere else. He had his chance. Could have been a free agent after the 2020 season. He would have crushed it in free agency. Of course, he crushed it with its extension, $400 million plus in total dollars. But we have not heard any discontent from him. It is not really his personality to be the kind of guy, even to go as far as Nolan Arenado did and express discontent with the way the team is being run. And you can look at Arenado almost as a polar opposite in simply the way these guys handle things. So the contract, yes, it is massive, but it's Mike Trout. Now he's got nine years left after this season, over 319 million, just over 319. So that's, yes, a ton of money. He also has a full no trade clause. So that would influence where he might go. Which teams would be interested? Every team would be interested because he's Mike Trout. And if you have a center fielder, you figure it out. But he's from, of course, the Philadelphia area. South Jersey is where he grew up. And there's always been speculation about the New York teams and the Phillies, of course. But he made the choice not to do that. So clearly what we're seeing from the Angels is the definition of insanity. It's the same thing over and over again, and they do it every year. They're failing with their pitching. They have a good offense, but of course now Trout is out for a little bit, six to eight weeks to be precise. So long story short, I don't see this happening anytime soon. I'm not sure it will ever happen simply because of Trout's personality. He is an agreeable guy. He's not someone who looks at the world half empty from what I can tell. But at some point, yes, people are going to say, hey, doesn't this guy want to win? Of course he wants to win. The question is, would he be willing to express that and try to force his hand somewhere else? And it's just a shame for the game that we don't get to see Mike Trout in the playoffs every October. And it's a shame also for Otani and Rendon. This is a team with some of the biggest stars in the game. And yet, you're right, Tim, we don't ever see them on the biggest stage. And that's wrong. All right, uh, let's get into a voicemail now. This one, a Rays fan. Hey, Ken. The Rays have been on the forefront of change in baseball over the past decade, such as using extreme shifts and using the opener. Something I've seen them do recently is have a bigger focus on guys that induce weak contact and can control the strike zone, such as Fleming, Yarbrough, and Rich Hill. Considering the results in hypothetically smaller risk of injury, do you think teams around the league will start focusing on these types of talents again, or do you see the high-octane stuff being the primary focus for a while longer? Thanks. Well, let's start with the Rays. Sometimes, and this happens to me all the time, our observations with the eyes don't always match what the numbers are telling us. And what you're saying there is certainly an interesting observation. I don't know that the numbers match it. 
they were right in the middle of the pack in zone percentage, amount of pitches in the strike zone. And the three guys you mentioned, Hill, Yarbrough, and Fleming, of those three, really the only one who is up there in soft contact is Yarbrough. But your point is a good one. And we're seeing such a high rate of injuries among pitchers, as high as ever before. We're seeing the velocity trend not lead to any abatement in that area. So why wouldn't teams look for guys who can pitch, who can induce soft contact, who don't need to throw everything at maximum effort in an attempt to avoid injuries? That would be a good idea, it would seem to me. And it'll be interesting to see in the next five years if teams stop scouting by radar gun and start scouting more on pitchability and whether a guy can command the zone. All right, the next one is back to email, Ken. It's from Duran Hammer. Uh, now that Hicks is done for the year, what do you think the Diamondbacks will want for Marte from the Yankees, Marlins for Starling, Casey for Merrifield? So basically all the teams that the Yankees may want to pluck somebody for here in the trade market. It's good to hear Duran engaging in the annual Yankee fan tradition of picking over non-contenders' carcasses. <laughs> but let me take these one by one because these are three names that might be out there. The least likely is Merrifield. First of all, the Royals think they're on the rise. And they have young pitching. They've got some interesting position players as well. You saw how they handled the offseason. They tried to compete and sign a number of veteran players. And Merrifield is kind of their centerpiece in many ways, along with Sal Perez. And he signed or under control through 2023. And he's cheap. He's really cheap. million this season, $2.75 million next season. And then there's a club option that right now is valued at $6.5 million but can increase to $10.5 million if he essentially stays healthy. There are rumors about him every year, but every year he stays. I don't see them wanting to trade him. Starling Marte probably would be the most likely because he's a potential free agent earning $12.5 million. I don't know what exactly the Marlins would want from him. Maybe one of the Yankees' younger position players, but he's a potential free agent. He's earning 12 and a half. As I said, he's not going to bring back a massive return. So from the standpoint of wanting to protect your prospect base, he is the best choice in that regard. Cattell Marte with the Diamondbacks is interesting as well, but I sort of see him like Whit Merrifield. Now, the Diamondbacks... They're going to need to make some decisions. They were playing well, and then they got hit with a massive amount of injuries, Marte being one of them. He's under control through 24. He's their best player. He's a really good player at second base at center field. He is someone, too, who is really affordable. His numbers, salaries are very low. $6 million this year, $8 million next year, $10 million the year after, and then $12 million those last two years are option years. So... Would the Diamondbacks do that? Maybe for a massive return that would probably have to include Davey Garcia and Florial, But I don't know. You do that. You make that move with Cattell Marte. You're essentially giving up for the next few years. And that is not the way that front office has operated. Remember, they've tried to compete kind of like Oakland does, even while retooling the roster. So to sum it up, I would say Starling Marte most likely, the other two not especially likely, and the price for Starling Marte would not be all that oppressive. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? 
Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right, I think we're going to get more and more questions on the trade front, and here's another one via the voicemail. My name is Joshua Asper from New York. I would like to know realistically what moves do you think the Mets will make to improve their ball club, and will the injuries at the present time affect who would they go out and get later in the season? Thank you. Joshua, that is a difficult question to answer right now because we're talking about a team with 16 players on the injured list, including five opening day starters. It's amazing. Pete Alonso, J.D. Davis, Jeff McNeil, Brandon Nimmo, Kevin Pillar, all of those guys were in the opening day lineup. They're all on the injured list right now, along with a gaggle of other players. So clearly their needs will depend on who is healthy and where they are both from a position standpoint and a pitching standpoint. It's tough to forecast right now. If you looked at the start of the season, you probably would have said maybe third base and J.D. Davis become more of a bench player. They've got, remember, not just DeGrom coming back, but Syndergaard, Lugo, and Carrasco. Lugo should help the bullpen. So once all of these players return outside of third base, and I'm sure a Mets fan would see another need, perhaps. I'm not sure I see anything that pressing. They're a good team. They're in first place right now with all their problems. So we'll have to see. The deadline is still two months plus away. Two months and one week, about, I don't know, nine weeks. So it's really early to forecast this kind of thing. We did see a trade this week, an interesting trade. But that was in part fueled by the Brewers' need for a shortstop and the Rays' abundance of infielders at AAA. It's not just Franco. It's Bruhan. It's Taylor Walls, who they promoted. Willie Adamas was not going to be on that team the entire season. So that was an unusual trade in terms of its timing, but most of the other action will occur in late July. All right, and sticking with the Mets, another question, speaking a little bit to what we just talked about, but just how well this team is hanging in there. Hey, guys. Tim Ryder. Wanted to hear your thoughts on the New York Mets' resiliency so far. Uh, lots of injuries, lots of adversity. Uh, really haven't succumbed to the uh, to the mountain of trouble they've uh, they've come across yet. Thanks if you take the call and keep on doing what you do. Well, thank you. And the Mets are an amazing story right now. We talked about earlier going into the season how they tried to build up their depth and kind of raise the floor of who they are so they don't get decimated by injuries and suddenly fall apart if things occur well things have occurred and they had built their depth and they had done a good job of it with guys like Pilar and VR and Almora and then 
just when that group, the bench mob, the Mets called them, was kind of contributing and making them look like an interesting team, a good number of them got hurt. So we're now kind of on the next bench mob, maybe the B-list bench mob, you'd call them. I'm talking about <laughs> Janeshri Fargus, Khalil Lee, Patrick Mazika. I will admit, I follow this sport pretty carefully. I had never heard of any of these guys going into the season. And they've all played roles in helping the Mets win games of late. Now, that is probably due in part to some good fortune. I don't know that you can expect these guys to contribute the way that they have for an extended period of time, but good for the Mets. And it's amazing what they've accomplished. Again, 16 guys on the IL. There's no other team that is close to them right now with that number and quite a number of regulars. Remember, they signed Jose Martinez too. Remember him? Former Cardinal and Ray, pretty good hitter. He's not even a factor because he's out for the year with meniscus surgery on his knee. So <laughs> they did a good job. And still they got bit, and yet they're surviving anyway. Hats off to them. Yeah, they've been helped out by the fact that the Braves or Phillies or any of the other teams in that division haven't taken off, and that's allowed them to hang in there. But, hey, you hang in there, you get healthy again, and and who knows here in the second half of the season as we move forward. All right, the other uh, big topic we've got messages for this week, uh, Ken, is the White Sox. Uh, no surprise there. Uh, this one from Billingstad, Norway, and it's a long one, um, and I hope I pronounced the name right. It's from Geert Jan Verhoeven. Uh, really long email about the White Sox and the Yermin Mercedes, Tony La Russa situation. Here you go. First off, Yermin was wrong. He should be called out for it. The excuse of not knowing the rule, even here in Norway, I have heard the blast from Fernando last year and know about this unwritten rule. And on top of that, feigning not seeing and or hearing the take call signs is just mind-blowing ignorance and it shows blatant disrespect for your opponent, your manager, and your team. All right, that's the first part. Secondly, this is the Norwegian Tony LaRusso, right? Well, but, but secondly, LaRusso was wrong for his absolute butchering of the situation. LaRusso's handling is a lot like his managing this year out of touch and unknowing. He deserves all the blame and heat for the way he handled this particular incident and in the process further losing the locker room and faith of White Sox fans. Is this the latest incident basically confirming fact that the White Sox coaches with LaRusso in the lead have lost the players in the clubhouse? And what are the unwritten rules on ignoring these types of signs, either on a swing, steal, or run? And how are these usually policed internally with clubs and clubhouses? I'll give you a moment to digest all that, Ken. (laughs) Okay, I'll try to answer these in turn. And Tim, if I miss one, just remind me and we'll go back. First of all, to the actual event. Swing at 3-0 in a game that is a route against a position player pitching. I have no problem with that. If you don't like it, don't mock the game with using a position player to pitch. And I know it's necessary at times for teams to do this, trying to save their pitching staff. But once that guy enters the game, all bets are off. I believe, or I'm in agreement with all of the commentary that has been along those lines. Stop it now. Stop worrying when the pitcher is a position player and conducting the unwritten rules as if they are sacred tablets. Please, enough of that. Now, if he missed a sign, that's a different story. And that is something that, yes, the White Sox would need to address because players generally are supposed to adhere to the signs that they're given. And it's not that I fail to understand LaRusso's point of view and the old school types who talk about this kind of thing. But again, I just think when a position player gets out there, forget it. And even when not, 
far too often we get caught up in these, I don't want to say nonsensical issues, but issues that are distractions from actual baseball. Your me, Mercedes is a great story this season. Fernando Tatis, last year, going back to that Grand Slam, what bothered me about that whole thing was that what he did, taking that pitch to the opposite field for a Grand Slam, was amazing. And no one talked about that. It was, oh, he shouldn't be swinging 3-0. So, all right, let's end it with that. I am not a fan of the unwritten rules in general. I just believe, while yes, respect for the game is really important and something that should never be taken for granted, it comes in all different forms, and when you throw on a position player, I'm not buying it. And also, by the way, we have seen comebacks from big deficits, and I don't believe in telling players to stop playing. I just, I have a problem with that. Now, to La Russa, the question of whether he has lost the clubhouse. My guess is, yes, he has lost certain segments of the clubhouse, if not the majority of the clubhouse. Not just with this, but with all the strategic stuff that we've discussed on earlier podcasts that I've written about, that James Fagan has written about for The Athletic. At the same time, this team has best run differential in the American League, the third best record. They seem to be doing fine, even without Aloy Jimenez and Luis Robert. They're good. And there are teams we've seen in the past, not recently, but we've seen teams win in spite of their managers, win in defiance of their managers, win despite their managers, and that might be a case of what's going on here. So that's more an old school thing, 1970s and 80s. Yeah. But if it's happening now, good for the White Sox. This hire is Jerry Reinsdorf. We know that it's Jerry's folly if it doesn't work out and he's not getting fired. I don't think unless something totally egregious happens, you could argue that those things already have happened, but he's going to be the manager and they're going to win probably based on just how good they are from a talent perspective, not because of Tony La Russa one way or the other. All right, so Tori Brink uh, had a similar question, but one little tweak at the end that, that is a little different, talking about La Russa and where this team ends up, if, if I guess they fall off a little bit, is who would be a good replacement for Tony La Russa? And maybe that's looking at next year or who knows when. But in your mind, Ken, I guess the question is, who fits this White Sox roster from a managerial standpoint? Well, the guy that really would have fit well is managing the Detroit Tigers. And he was available last offseason, A.J. Hinch. And remember, this rush to La Russa is what led to Hinch not being even interviewed by the White Sox. And I know A.J. had his issues with Houston. Of course, I wrote about that and the sign stealing. But the fact of the matter is he got hired right away. Cora got hired right away. They both served their suspensions. That's that. So... He would have been the type of manager you would have been looking for. Now, it's a good question long-term because certainly LaRusse is not going to manage forever here, right? So I don't know ultimately what they will want. Certainly, it would seem to me that a younger type, maybe a bilingual manager would be useful. LaRusse is bilingual, by the way. But this is a long way away. I just don't have a good answer for you right now. 
Guys tend to think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort, but it's possible to have it both ways. I'm all set for summer thanks to Mack Weldon. The Vesper polo shirt is so breathable you can wear it on the golf course, but it looks classy enough to wear to a party. The Maverick Tech Chino short is ultra-flexible, and the Pima Crew Neck T-shirt is perfect for those casual weekends. There's no need to be uncomfortable in your clothing ever again. Some guys just want to look good without calling attention to themselves. Mack Weldon Apparel gives you understated good looks for understated confidence. Mack Weldon clothes are designed to fit your style and the demands of modern life. They look like regular clothes but feel like the latest in modern comfort. They're the go-to choice for guys who want to look great without even trying. Breathable underwear that keeps you cool, dry, and comfy all day. Crazy comfortable but elevated sweatpants. An upgraded classic polo with antimicrobial silver threads. An ultra soft antimicrobial tee for when you need to stay fresh longer. That's the Silver Crew Neck T-shirt. Get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code MLBSHOW. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com. Promo code MLB show. All right, let's go back to the voicemail and New Jersey. Hey, Ken, this is Daniel from New Jersey. My question is, Xander Bogart's the best offensive shortstop in the game. And if he decides to opt out after next year, do you, what sort of deal do you think he can get on the open market? Thanks. Daniel, second question first. His deal on the open market, if he opts out after 2022, is going to hinge on what happens with all the shortstops in this class right now. And that's Trevor Story, it's Javier Baez, Carlos Correa, Corey Seager. Now we've seen Lindor, he got $341 million. I expect that some of these other players will be in that range, if not above. I thought Seager might be above the way he was going earlier. Now the injury might change things a little bit. But that opt-out is coming at a really interesting time for him because the collective bargaining agreement presumably will be done by then. It has to be because otherwise there's no 2022 season. And the market will be reset, the free agent market. So at that point, he'll be entering his age 30 season. He's a durable guy. He might not be a shortstop long term. His defensive metrics are not good in general. They're actually a little bit better this year according to defensive run save, but he's ranked kind of near the bottom for the last five years, at shortstop. But hey, Xander Bogarts can play another position because, getting to the first part of your question, his offensive profile is off the charts. Now, is he the best offensive shortstop in the game right now? You can certainly make that case. It's him and Tatis, and he's played more this year. He's played 45 of the 47 games the Red Sox have played going into Sunday. Tatis only 29 of 46. The Padres have played due to his subluxation of the left shoulder, the positive COVID test, all of that. Bogart's OPS is actually above Tatis right now. When you go to OPS+, Plus, which accounts for park factors, he's below. But 345 batting average going into Sunday, that's best among shortstops. 402 on base, best among shortstops. 602 slug, best among shortstops. So Bogart's is in a really good place right now. And his 59 hits lead the American League going into Sunday as well. A premium offensive player. There's no question about it. And that's why if he had to move to third base as a free agent, he'd still be really attractive, assuming he continues on this trajectory for really the rest of this season and all of next season before that opt-out decision. 
And of course, he played some third base for a championship Red Sox team back in 2013. Yes, he certainly he... did, Tim. All right, one last question. This one via the email. It's from Kyle Land. It says, hey, Ken, my question is, should baseball writers take into consideration a player's racist, homophobic, xenophobic actions into account when deciding who gets into the Hall of Fame? It's no secret some racists of the past have been inducted, but the business of baseball and the world has changed so much. I can't imagine the league would welcome that kind of scrutiny. Thanks, and keep up the good work. This is something that we think about a lot as voting members of the Baseball Writers Association of America. And if you recall a couple of months ago when I wrote my Hall of Fame column, I basically said these choices are becoming more and more difficult and I'm having a hard time making them and I'm considering not voting in the future. Now, Kurt Schilling right now is kind of the test case for what you're talking about because certainly he has made comments that have been offensive in many ways. So you're seeing a guy who should be in the Hall of Fame, who is not in the Hall of Fame, is, has come very close to the 75% minimum required of the vote, and it has one year left. I don't know if he's going to make it or not. And yeah, times have changed, and people are less willing to honor those who act in this fashion. I think your question is, should we honor them? And that is a really difficult one because there are fans who will say, hey, it's what these guys do on the field. We're not electing the Hall of Very Good People. We're electing the Hall of Fame for baseball players. I agree with that. It's not the Hall of Great Character. There's no question about that. And if it was, Dale Murphy should be in, right? He was a borderline guy with great character, but he's not in because it's the Hall of Fame for your baseball playing career. I have a hard time honoring, yes, people who have acted in the way Schilling has acted. However, I have voted for Schilling and will continue to vote for Schilling because I believe it should be based on playing performance. Now, you can ask, where is the line where you say no? And this is where I struggle because was the line or should the line be at Schilling? Maybe. I'm not saying my opinion here is absolutely correct. In fact, I'm torn by this. Omar Vizquel, Katie Strang and I reported on his sexual harassment of his ex-wife. Well, should he be in? <laughs> I voted for him too last year. I felt horrible about it. That's why I wrote that column. Because after I sent my ballot in, I felt sick almost immediately. You might say, well, Ken, why didn't you give it more thought? That's a good question. <laughs> I gave it a lot of thought, went one way, and then wasn't comfortable with it. So... I struggle with this. I know a lot of the voters do. In fact, virtually all of them have a thought one way or the other. Ultimately, it comes down to an individual decision. And it's your personal feeling about how to handle this. And as I said, I'm considering not voting at all because I struggle with this so much. And I don't know that there's a right answer. And that's really the problem, that there is no good answer. So... I know people have their own opinions, and certainly they're entitled to them. I always feel that way at the Hall of Fame vote. Whether you're just talking about the player as a player or whether you're talking about the player as a human, this is an individual subjective thing. And everyone, I respect every opinion, really, that a person might have. Yeah, it's a it's a deep topic, and it's something that usually we hear about more in uh, in the off season. But this one came up through in in the season, and I'm sure it will come back again. Come you know December and into January of next year. All right, if you want to get involved in the show next week, you can 
Leave us your voicemail. Call 646-543-7072. You can also email us at tabaseballshow at gmail.com. Ken, where are you headed next week? I will be in New York for Braves-Mets. And actually, I've got that game on MLB Network Friday night and then Fox on Saturday. Back-to-back days at home. That's an easy week. Yeah, easier. Yes. <laughs> all right. We'll keep coming back to the Athletic Baseball Show all week long. On Tuesday, it is Starkville with Jason Stark and Doug Glanville. Then on Thursday, Hunter Pence and Grant Brisbury get you all the caffeinated baseball coverage you need. And then on Friday, it's always Derek Van Riper and Keith Law. They talk prospects. They talk organizations. Great stuff on Fridays as well. And if you want to uh, join The Athletic right now, we're running a great deal. You can join for just $1 a month. Go to theathletic.com slash baseball show. We don't always have that $1 a month deal, so take advantage while it's there. Ken, you have a great week. Tim, thanks. And about that deal, by the way, I want to say one thing. Yep. It always amuses me when people on Twitter will say, well, I'm not paying for that article. Well, guess what? When you subscribe to a publication, you're not just paying for one article. You're paying for everything we do. So if you plunk down that $1 for six months, you're getting a whole lot of sports coverage, not just baseball coverage. And I highly recommend it. Yeah, and beyond the writing, you can also get all of our podcasts without the ads. So that's another bonus that, uh, that we don't even really push that much, but, uh, but just one more bonus of that. per month. All right, for Ken Rosenthal, I'm Tim McMaster. Have a great week, everybody. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.